This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. So we are continuing and jumping back into our series. We took a break last week, but our series for Lent is called Groundwork for the Soul. Groundwork is that preliminary work that you need to do before engaging in some big undertaking or taking on a new project. Usually, if you're going to be successful, first, there's some preliminary steps. There's some groundwork that you have to pay attention to in order to have a successful and completed project. According to the Bible, there's no more important undertaking than the mission of Jesus in the world. And so for Jesus, before starting, he had to go through this season of preparation. Jesus had a season of doing groundwork before he was launched out into his public ministry. And that's what Matthew chapter 3 and 4 are all about. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 3 and 4 during the season of Lent because these chapters, their main focus is on Jesus' groundwork for his public ministry. And as such, they're very helpful. They have a lot of application for us in our own seasons of spiritual groundwork. And before we can move into new places of maturity, spiritual maturity and growth, before we can move into new places in our calling, whether individually or as a church, we first need to pay attention to the groundwork in our soul. And if, if you're new to Christianity and you're exploring, you still have questions, you're trying to understand what Jesus is all about, it's important for you to look at where, the question of where do I begin? Where do I start? And Matthew chapter 3 and 4 are very helpful for that. If we skip the seasons of groundwork, if we skip the, the steps of preparation, what happens is often we will get stuck. We'll get stalled out on a project and we'll end up having to start all over again at the beginning. There are a lot of illustrations of this in life. For me, I am not by any stretch of the imagination a handyman. So everything I learn 
I have to learn by failure and trial and error. So when I'm putting something together, I put together a basketball hoop or Ikea furniture or whatever, there's usually a step in the process where I realize, oh, man, this is on backwards. <laughs> I put this flip this way, and it's supposed to be this way. And so what I have to do is take the whole thing apart and start at the very beginning because I didn't read all the instructions first and figure out how it was supposed to go. This is particularly true spiritually with the theme that we're looking at today, which is temptation. If we don't face temptation, if we don't understand temptation, what we'll find in our lives is we're always going to be starting over. We're always going to be stalling out with our growth spiritually and with the things that God has called us to do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very clear, like beginning with John the Baptist, like Jesus' baptism, temptation was a prerequisite before Jesus could start his ministry. Before he was ready to launch out into his public ministry, Jesus had to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Why would that be? Well, what I hope to show us this morning and for us to, to look at and to explore is that to understand the answer to that question, to get the answer to that question is to understand more clearly who Jesus is and why he came. And for our own lives, realizing that recognizing and resisting temptation is one of the most important prerequisites in everyone's spiritual lives, in everybody's spiritual journeys, no matter where you're at. So you'll see an outline there for you in your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. First, we're going to look at temptation. What is it? Where does it come from? We'll look at Jesus and his temptation. Why did he have to be tempted? What, what function did it play in the story of Jesus? And thirdly, how does this help us in our temptation? So first, temptation. What is it and where does it come from? By and large, I would say, temptation is kind of a lost and forgotten concept in our culture. In medieval times, you'd, you'd you might expect people to be talking about temptation. Or in Puritan England or in Puritan times in the United States, you would say, yeah, temptation was a normal part of conversation. And so if it comes up, we tend to think, why are you talking about temptation? Why are you going all medieval on me? Or why are you going all puritanical and talking about this concept of temptation? It seems like a lost concept. When we do use it, we often refer to things in a little bit more of a trivial manner, you're tempted by food or sexual attraction in a way that's harmless and just a part of life. Often when I'm preparing a sermon, I'll get a thought, something will come to me, or the phraseology of something will come to me, and when I'm just driving or I don't have my, my computer, what I'll do is I'll take my iPhone out, and I'll open up the little notes app, and I'll just start talking, and so then it'll dictate what I'm saying into the notes app, and then I can email that to myself and put it on my computer. But I was doing that this week. A thought came to me, and I said something about temptation. And then I looked at my phone, and it, it, didn't, it didn't register temptation. It was autocorrecting to some name, Tim-tation, T-I-M-T-A-T-I-A-N. And I kept doing it like 20 times, temptation, temptation. I'm trying to enunciate every single part of the word, but every time it's saying, Temptation. I don't know if there is a person named Temptation. 
if he exists, but my iPhone has even forgotten the concept that there is a thing, temptation, and that it's important. So I think for most people in our culture, temptation is kind of a trivialized concept. There was even like a reality show, Temptation Island, many years ago. But for a smaller group, temptation is not trivialized, but a magnified concept. The religious approach to temptation, people who are very serious about religion, tend to fall into the attitude that everything out there is a temptation into evil. And so that results in religious groups putting walls around themselves, creating a subculture, and hiding from everything out there in the world. Because everything is a temptation, and we have to hide. To admit temptation in a group like this is to become an outcast. It's not even okay to say that you are tempted when temptation is magnified like that. The Bible gives us a different approach. It doesn't trivialize temptation. It doesn't magnify it. It says it's dangerous, but it doesn't define us. It doesn't define the way that we live in the world. The story of Scripture actually tells us that the entire trajectory of human history was changed and affected by temptation. In the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted, and then they gave in to this temptation, and that resulted in the entrance of sin and evil into God's good creation. It's the same thing for us personally. How we handle our temptation can alter the trajectory of our lives and of our story. But it's it's dangerous, but it doesn't define us. It's a normal, actually, it's an expected, yes, part of our spiritual lives to experience temptation. It's not trivialized. It's not magnified as something more powerful than God or invincible over us in the power of the gospel. So let me offer a definition of temptation. When we're talking about temptation, what are we talking about? Temptation is anything that draws us away from God's will and call for our lives. It's a broad definition, but it's anything that draws us away from God's will and call for our lives. So temptation is distinct from sin. It is the lure and the enticement to sin. So if we could use a fishing analogy, temptation is the bait, sin is the bite, and the consequences of sin are being caught. That's temptation. Where does it come from? Our passage tells us Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We might have a lot of questions about that. If we have questions about this concept of temptation, we probably have more questions and a harder time with this concept of the devil. Can we believe in a devil? In our modern times, in a sophisticated age, is this, just, is this an outdated superstition? Well, the scriptures do affirm the real existence of evil, of supernatural evil that seeks to tempt us and to draw us away from God's will and call in our lives. We look at the book of James, the letter of James. He says in chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So James is saying temptation is never from God. The lure and the enticement away from God comes from us, comes from our own desire. But our text says that the lure and the enticement doesn't only just come from within us. It comes from something, someone outside of us, a spiritual being called the devil. So we can't say, the devil made me do it. But we also can't say that it's just the evil in us or the evil in the world is all solely a result of human choice. So let's talk about this idea of the devil. Before we dismiss the idea of the devil as a primitive myth, let me challenge or let me ask all of you to consider the fact that we all need to account for the existence of evil in some way, whatever our worldview, whatever our belief system. And so there are some major options out there for understanding the existence of evil in the world. You have a naturalistic, scientific worldview. The world is a closed system. All there is is the natural world. So evil, then, is not a real thing. It doesn't have an existence. It doesn't really have a meaning. It's just the way the world is and the way the world will always be. And so, then, a question for this worldview would be, why do we feel that evil is real? Why do we feel that evil is an intruder in this world? It doesn't belong. It's an intruder in our lives that needs to be resisted. Another option is the Eastern view, that good and evil in this world are necessary opposites. They're always kind of counterbalancing each other, and they are necessary to have a balanced universe. Ultimately, they are one and the same. And so the question there is, then why do we feel like we need to resist and work against and fight against evil in us and in the world? Where does that come from if evil is a necessary part of the universe? Another option is more of the agnostic modern humanist view that says, maybe there's a spiritual realm, but let's get real. Evil is the result of human choices and unjust systems in the world. For all our advances in science then, in our modern world, for all our advances in understanding and education, why haven't we been able to conquer evil? Instead of seeing evil lesson and the effects of evil lesson in our modern world, evil has raised its ugly face in even greater and more destructive ways. Do we believe that the atrocities of Nazi Germany, the Rwandan genocide, are all solely the result of our fellow human beings gone bad? Is the enemy other people, other groups, or ideas? Or do we all share a common enemy? The Bible says the devil is real, that evil is an intruder into God's good world and his design for humanity. It's fueled by something. It's fueled by someone beyond human existence and human beings. We do have a common enemy who is beyond us. And so, given those questions, a case I think can be made that the existence of the devil is the most sensible explanation for the persistence of evil, the complexity of evil, and the power of evil. So, Where does temptation come from? It comes from within us, and also, the Bible says, from without us, from the devil. That's temptation. 
Let's move further into our passage and look at Jesus' temptation. We're going to look at three things about Jesus' temptation. It was a reversal, it was real, and it was representative. The first question you might have about this passage and this story is, why would God lead Jesus into the wilderness to have a confrontation with the devil to be tempted as a prerequisite for his mission? So to answer that question, we need to take a little bit of a closer look at the word tempt. The word tempt, the same Greek word, pirasso, can be translated in three different ways. It can be translated tempt or trial or test. Test or temptation, depending on the context. So the same event can be a temptation from Satan to weaken our faith, and it can be a test from God to strengthen our faith. An illustration. If someone makes a big claim, they're talking, they're running smack and saying big things, how do we know that it's true? We have to test that claim. So I'm a big college basketball fan. This week is March Madness, so there's a lot of excitement happening. Some of you are UCLA grads, and you may have picked up on this story. The father of one of the players at UCLA, one of the current players, his name is LeVar Ball. He was all over the news because I think it was this past week he claimed that in his prime, quote, he would kill Michael Jordan one-on-one. He cannot stop me one-on-one, is what he said. So what you need to know about LeVar Ball, he played one year of college basketball and averaged 2.2 points per game. So he's running his mouth. Michael Jordan, of course, in my opinion, born in Chicago, greatest basketball player of all time. So we can't test that claim because he's like, back in my prime, I could have taken Jordan one-on-one. So he can say whatever he wants. It's unprovable because it can't be tested even though we know he's ridiculous. God tells Jesus here and us in the passage before through the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my king. This is my Messiah. He's going to bring justice to the world and to the nations. Well, how do we know it's true? How do we know he's a true Israel? He's a true Adam. He is the king that is to come. Jesus is sent into the wilderness, and he is proven to be such because he passes the test. It's not for God's sake that he was tempted, but it was actually for Jesus' own sake and for our sake as we see him pass the test. This proves he is the one. So for Satan, it was a temptation to draw Jesus off course out of his mission. But for God and from God, it was a test to strengthen his trust and security in his identity as God's son and to strengthen his focus and resolve in his mission. So this is very important when it comes to temptation. Very important point. Temptation and Satan are not outside of God's sovereign purposes and control. He uses even temptation to further his purposes. God here is actually turning the tables on Satan and defeating him at his own game. He's reversing Satan's intention. So in passing this test, Jesus comes out, he's more secure of his identity as God's son than ever before. He's better prepared and better resolved to face the suffering and the resistance and the rejection and the cross that is to come, that is the centerpiece of his mission. So God is never absent in temptation. 
He is always present. True for Jesus and true for us. Jesus' temptation was also real. There's been a debate over the centuries. How could this be real? This is God's Son. He is God and He is man. Could He really have sinned? Is this a real temptation or was this all just kind of a show? Well, we can't get into all the theological intricacies, but the Gospels show us the full and complete and real humanity of Jesus and that it is vitally important for us to affirm that Jesus really was tempted, even if we can't explain everything about Him. And not only did Jesus experience real temptation, Jesus experienced temptation more fully and more powerfully than any human being who has ever lived because he never gave into it. So Jesus knows the lure and the power of all human temptation better than anyone else. I love how C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. It's a longer quote. I don't know if you can read it all, but I will read it for us. C.S. Lewis said, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. We can advance ahead in the PowerPoint. He says this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army not by fighting against against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to find it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. This is meant to be a profound comfort to us. When we are tempted and when we give in to temptation. We read it earlier, but Hebrews 4.15 tells us why. The author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that is amazing that God, the God of the universe, has sympathy from the inside when it comes to our temptations. He understands our struggles and our weaknesses. He came to experience in them more powerfully than we ever will. So Jesus' temptation was real. Thirdly, it was representative. It's important for us to see Matthew's main point in telling us this story. His main point is not to say, Jesus is a model for you and how to resist temptation. Although, that is a part of the story. But it's not the main point. The main point in the story is that Jesus is a representative for you who has resisted and won against temptation in our place. So he's not an example, but a champion. I have to talk about March Madness again here. So when you're watching your team, my team's the Florida Gators, I'm watching them, and they won two games, and I say, we are in the Sweet 16, we won. 
and I have done nothing except I sat on the couch or I'm following on my ESPN app or whatever. How am I saying we won when the Florida Gator team won? And that's how we talk about our favorite teams. When we, they win the championship, we say we won. That's the way Matthew is telling us this story, that Jesus is our champion against temptation of every kind. He's our representative. The two most important failures and temptation in the Bible happened in the garden at the very beginning of the story in Genesis 3 and in the wilderness wanderings of Israel in Exodus and Numbers. And we see parallels to Jesus' temptation to both of these failures of temptation. First, in the garden. Genesis 3.6 said, These, this fruit is good for food. Satan said to Jesus, Turn these stones to bread. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. He said, These, This fruit is pleasing to the eye. Satan tempted Jesus. Throw yourself down. Put on a show. Be a crowd pleaser. Satan said to Adam and Eve, This fruit is desirable for wisdom. You will become like God. Satan said, Gain glory, Jesus, through idolatry. Worship me. And Jesus passed where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus also passed where Israel failed. Like Israel, Jesus came out of Egypt. Matthew already told us that. Like Jesus, Jesus, like Israel, Jesus passed through the waters and he was baptized and he came out into the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, like Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Each of Jesus' responses to Satan's temptation are direct quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 6 through 8, which are all about Israel's failure in giving in to temptation in the wilderness. Jesus' temptations were turn these stones to bread. Use your power to prioritize your own comfort and your own needs. Jesus' temptation was throw yourself down. Prove you're the Messiah by something spectacular. And thirdly, all the kingdoms and the glory of the world can be yours if you fall down and worship me. There is a shortcut to glory that doesn't go through the cross, that doesn't involve suffering. Altogether, we see Satan's temptations were designed to lead Jesus away from the path of humble service and loving sacrifice that was necessary for our redemption. Jesus was victorious over Satan here as our representative. He is our champion when it comes to temptation. And this is the uniqueness of the gospel. Compared to all other religions, all other belief systems, all other belief systems say, if you want salvation, if you want to achieve your goal, whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever it is, is it that the aim and the purpose of this belief system, when it comes to temptation, you are on your own. If you don't defeat and conquer your temptations, you will lose the goal and the prize. The gospel tells us that God himself says, not only can I sympathize with your weaknesses and your temptations and understand why you fail and fall, I have faced, I have fought, and I have triumphed over them in your place. And that is the beauty of the gospel. So that is temptation, Jesus' temptations, and now let's look at our temptations. Jesus' temptation helps us to recognize and resist our temptations 
and also to recover when we fall into temptation. First, we see from this passage that it's important for us to recognize temptation when it comes. We see that temptation often comes to us after spiritual high points in our lives. Jesus was on a high. He had just heard the voice of the Father and said, now it's go time. Jesus had to go through temptation. That's often how it works in our lives. Temptation often comes in times when God is calling us to something new. Maybe it's being a new parent. Maybe it's a new marriage. Maybe it's a new place of ministry or in the workplace. His goal is not just to tempt us to sin, but to bring distraction and to bring doubt into our calling and service. And so we need to recognize temptation for what it is and also how God can use it for our good to test us. And like a test, like we've said before, tests, a spiritual test can show us, reveal to us, just like you take a math test or an English test, it shows us where you are. It shows us, am I an A student in math or am I a D student in math? It reveals to us where we're at spiritually. And in that respect, it can be very humbling. But it can also strengthen us and confirm us in our identity and in our calling. If you want to be a CPA and you ace Intro to financial accounting, you say, I should keep going. I'm called into this service. So we need to know when to expect temptation, how God uses it. We also need to know our weak spots because the devil went after Jesus in his weakest places. He was fasting for 40 days, and so he was hungry. That's where Satan started. He was entering into a ministry of public rejection and suffering. And he offered him a path and a shortcut around that suffering. And so for our weak spots, do we know the specific ways currently in our lives where we are being tempted and drawn away from God's will and God's call in our lives? How would you answer that? Do you know? We should. And not only us, but we should have trusted friends around us that also know the answer to that question. Jesus' three temptations can be seen in a number of ways. I think it's helpful to see them as three categories, three areas of temptation, three common weak spots that we all face. One is the temptation of pleasure and comfort. Satan says, turn the stones to bread. In our culture, maybe especially in Southern California and Orange County, we are driven by this insatiable hunger for comfort and for pleasure. It can be sexually, sexual pleasure, consumerism, just stuff. It can be food. It can be travel. It can be all of that together. We're driven to satisfy our hunger for pleasure and comfort so much so that we are numbed and we lose our hunger spiritually for the Word of God and for the life that God gives us in His Word. Is that our weak spot? Or it could be the second temptation, the temptation for praise and credit. The devil took Jesus to the most public place in the most important city in Israel. He said, you're in Jerusalem. You're at the top of the temple. Here's what you should do. Just throw yourself down and wow the crowds. Who wouldn't follow you after that? In our self-obsessed culture, the temptation to live for our own praise 
and for our own credit is very strong. What, what Satan is actually doing with, with Jesus, he's, he's asking him to test God. And we test God anytime we live for our own praise and credit. We're saying, if you love me, if you are God's son, you'll protect me if I cast myself down in this wonder-making spectacle. For us, we say, if you love me, you, God, will make my life all about me and my agenda and my plans and my success. And if you don't, I won't trust you anymore. Is that where you're sensing a weak spot in your heart? Third temptation is the temptation of power and control. The devil says, you can have all power if you worship me. Jesus was facing a road of suffering. He would struggle to maintain his sense of security and God's love on that road. The temptation for us to look to security and control, to find ways to control our lives anywhere but in God, always leads us into compromise and to idolatry. Because security is only found in surrender and true influence and true impact is only found on the road of suffering and sacrificial love. So it could be pleasure and comfort. It could be praise and credit. It could be power and control. We should know our current weak spots. Secondly, for our temptations, this helps us know how do we resist our temptations. One commentator said Jesus had a twofold strategy. He recalled Scripture and he remembered his baptism. He recalled Scripture. Here's what Tim Keller says. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not presume to face the forces of evil in the world without a profound knowledge of the Bible in his mind and heart, how could we try to face life any other way? The truth of Scripture counteracts the false promises of temptation. Jesus also remembered his baptism. He recalled his identity as God's beloved son in whom God was well pleased. Satan wants him to question that identity. Satan wants to go after our trust in God, our loving Father, who will never lead us into anywhere but is for our good. And so Jesus was firm, said, no, I am God's son. He recalled scripture, and he remembered his baptism. Lastly, how do we recover when we fall into temptation? When we fail and fall into temptation, and we will, we need to know how to recover. In fact, recovering from falling into temptation, it might be the thing that makes us or breaks us in our relationship with God. As we can go into a place of despair and self-focus and beating ourselves up and saying, how can I fall in temptation, into temptation like that? Or it's an opportunity for us to go deeper into the gospel with a renewed focus on Jesus and His sufficient grace, even when we fall. Toward the end of my preparation on this sermon, I discovered something I'd never heard about before. You may have heard of John Milton, 17th century poet, and he wrote the epic poem Paradise Lost. And that's the one I knew about. Paradise Lost was all about Genesis 3, the original temptation with the serpent in the garden in Adam and Eve. But what I didn't know is that a few years later, he wrote another poem, a follow-up poem called Paradise Regained. That was all about chapter 4 in the book of Matthew. It's all about Jesus' victory in the wilderness against Satan. 
Here's how he opens that up. He says, I know this is old school English. I might have to translate here. I who, erewhile, the happy garden sung. I'm the guy who wrote Paradise Lost. By one man's disobedience lost, now sing. Recovered paradise to all mankind. By one man's firm obedience, fully tried. Through all temptation and the tempter foiled. In all his wiles, defeated and repulsed. And Eden raised in the waste of wilderness. Eden raised in the waste of wilderness. That's what Matthew 4 is all about. And that's what God can do in our own lives. Even when we fall into temptation, when we're in the wasteland, in the wilderness of falling into sin... Even in that spot, because Jesus was victorious for us, God can bring the renewal and the new creation of Eden. Jesus always sympathizes with our weaknesses and temptations, and Jesus is there to meet us, to strengthen us, even when we fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this passage. We know on the one hand it gives us freedom to acknowledge that, yes, we are tempted in many ways. We do fall into temptation. And we know that you understand that. And so I pray for all of us this morning, as we've just heard this, that there is a champion who has defeated temptation for us, that we would find new strength for our temptations. And if we've fallen, and if we've failed, I pray that we would find fresh grace and mercy to know that you understand, and that's why you came, to know that the power of sin has been defeated, and its guilt, and its shame has been taken away and covered. through the cross and the victory of Jesus. We thank you and we pray in his name. Amen.